going to be in chapter 4 of Colossians, and we're going to read verses 17, uh, 7 through 18. We're actually going to finish the, the chapter today. Let's read this together. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved, uh, beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the, the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're enjoying uh, our 4th of July weekend. We thank you for the independence and freedom of our country. And even as we celebrate freedom, we know that it's not free. Freedom comes on the backs of those who, through sweat and tears, um, are willing to give their life in defense of our country. So we thank you for those who serve. We thank you for this great country of ours and that we can um, celebrate freedom. We do that. We thank you also for the freedom that comes through Christ. We thank you for your word today, to be able to sit outside underneath a beautiful day and uh, to read your word, to study it, to recite it out loud as a church, Lord God. And I pray that you give us hearts and ears and eyes to see, hear, and heed all that you would have for us in this passage as we finish this book of Colossians today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. And amen. All right, gang. Well, this is the last message in uh, the book of Colossians. And my hope is that after, uh, I think it's been 18 weeks, that you would have gotten something out of it. And more importantly, you know, if you've been sleeping over any of those times, in, uh, in those 18 weeks that we've been starting the book, that you get the, the simple message that uh, Colossians is talking about Jesus, that he's preeminent, he's preeminent over this world, creator, sustaining it, he's create, uh, preeminent over his church. I think one of the uh, primary messages of Colossians is, as you uh, have received Jesus, so walk in him. And so in that sense, Paul is saying, our behavior is always connected to what we believe. You can't um, believe something and act a different way. We've seen all kind of imperatives in the book of Colossians. Not only has Paul uh, told us to walk this way in Jesus, but he's told us to steer, steer clear of the philosophies of the world. He's told us to, uh, to put on Christ, to put off sin. He's told us that whatever you do in word or deed, do it in um, in the name of the Lord Jesus. We, it's him that we serve. It's, he, it's him that's preeminent. And in light of who Jesus is and all that he's done, 
live your life redemptively in regards to him. Um, this morning's text is, I, I don't know, what you, I mean, what do you do when you get to the end of a, a chapter of, of one of Paul's letters when he's, he's sending out greetings to people and um, expressing, you know, just thanks for those that have been involved in his ministry? I, you know, sometimes I have to admit, I just speed right on up. I don't ignore it. I don't turn the page. But I, I do. I, I speed right on up so I can get to the next chapter with all of the other meat. Uh, what I would commend for us today is that there's meat here for us to glean. That there are some things in this last uh, chapter of the Bible that God wants, to, God, God wants us to get. Um, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out by God. That means it's inspired. And then, and then Paul says, scripture does four things for us. He says it's profitable for teaching. It's for reproof, that's, that's rebuke, for correction, that's what your grandma does to you when your, your mom or grandma, maybe even your spouse, when you do something wrong. And then he says, it's profitable for training in righteousness. And I would suggest that what we're getting today in these last few verses is really training in righteousness. This, these are training in righteousness kinds of verses. They're helping us in terms of our holiness and our progress in the Lord. Um, you know, the, the Bible uh, does many things for us. It conveys itself in many ways for us. One of the two ways that we see the Bible conveying itself is, is firstly prescriptive. That means uh, there are things in the Bible for us to do. It commands us. It tells us what to do. Um, it's also descriptive. In fact, the descriptive part of the Bible is, is more prevalent than the prescriptive part. And the descriptive part is basically the narrative. Um, it's the stories that come along that unfold, that help us know who God is in his story of redemption. With redemptive text, we get to ask the question, what can I model? What principles are here that I can, that I can learn from? You know, a lot of times we call the Bible uh, an instruction book for life, an instruction manual for, for life. And I don't know if I completely agree with that. There's, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me how to, how to make my kids stop doing the things I don't want my kid to do when my kid is doing them. Um, but the Bible does give me principles about that. The Bible doesn't tell me how to change the car on my tire. Does yours? All right. So, the, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's wisdom for life. It's not necessarily instruction manual, uh, manual for life. I don't know if you all agree with me on that. You can challenge me. All right. But, you know, the Bible is narrative. It's, it's story. And I think the reason why I'm saying this is God gives us descriptive narrative story parts of the Bible because he, needs, he knows that we not only need to be told what to do, we, we learn also from the story. I mean, you learn from, don't you learn from other people's stories, how they got from point A to point B, and how, how, they, made, how they made something good out of something that was bad, and how they persevered through the trial, through the storm, and we get that through the descriptive parts of the Bible, and that really is what we're getting here. And so amongst the characters that Paul mentions at the end of his letter, and there's a lot of them, I mean, he's got a, a, a slew of people that, that he's sending greetings from, that he's saying, hey, ministry's coming to you from these people. Uh, and then he says, all these people with me here in Rome in prison, they, they're, they're wanting to say hey to you all in the, in the church at Colossae. And, and then he also greets uh, through his letter sent by uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. He says, hey, and oh, oh, by the way, tell these people out in the church at Colossae. I said, hey, I, I miss them. I love them. I'm praying for them, all those kind of things. And what I want to suggest is just three points for us this morning in this passage. What I really want to do, honestly, it's in my heart. I wrote like five sermons for this, for this text. 
What I really want to do is spend like five hours and, and have us dig into each of these lives. Because each of these lives are stories of redemption. They really are. It's, it's how God took a life, a person that was far from him. And by the Holy Spirit, he, um, he breathed life into them. And they came alive in Jesus through his gospel. And, and they weren't all perfect, as we'll learn in a few seconds. But they all had a journey in the gospel to, to warrant them being mentioned by Paul. And all except for one has a very favorable commendation from him. And so the three things I think we can get out of here is, is firstly, um, lives of service, that these people exemplify lives of service. Secondly, they exemplify a sense of family, the family of God. And thirdly, that they, they display the gospel community, things that I think we should all um, commend to ourselves. Firstly, a life of service. Um, Colossians 4, 7, verse 7, 9, and 12. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother, and faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so Paul is commending these people as for living as servants. And there's a commendation that they were hard workers, they served faithfully, they fought alongside him in the, the work of God's kingdom. They get commended because they were living well as servants. They give of themselves, they give of their lives, they steward the gift that God has put in them, and they use it rightly in service to God and his kingdom. And Paul is commending them. Um, we'll start with the first one, Tychicus. I practiced that name all week, I just want you to know. Tychicus, Tychicus. I mean, I've said it several different ways. I think the C-H is, is silent, and the, the, it's pronounced as a K, rather. Tychicus, say it with me. Tychicus. Yeah, that's why you all didn't read the scriptures with me before, I mean, when we started, because all these, these wild names, right? Tychicus exemplifies uh, a life of service. He exemplifies a life of service. He's actually mentioned in the Bible five times in the New Testament. Most notably, we see him in Acts 20, verse 4. He's listed among a bunch of other disciples in the region of Asia who joined Paul during his third missionary, missionary journey. And a part of that journey was to take financial contributions uh, from the church in Jerusalem and give it to other churches who were in need. And so uh, we could say that Tychicus was uh, important to Paul and his ministry because he could be entrusted with some of the most uh, special um, and sensitive missions, especially taking money and, and dispersing it across um, the known um, Bible world. And so in Colossians, we see Tychicus tasked to deliver a letter to Colossae, and he was supposed to really do, uh, do three things. He's supposed to tell the Colossian church about Paul. He was supposed to um, send, uh, send them, uh, uh, let them know how Paul was doing, and also encourage them in their hearts. That was his mission in regards to um, taking this letter. It's also thought that Tychicus had with him uh, the letter of uh, Philemon, which is a, a letter to a slave owner about his, his, his former slave Onesimus, and also the letter to the church at, at Ephesus. Um, we find out how special Tychicus was by how Paul commends him. He uses three, three labels, so to speak. Firstly, he calls him beloved brother, and that's just another way of saying 
he's a Christian. But more than that, he really is saying uh, there's something special about you. You've come alongside me as as family, but not just family like blood bought family, but family that only God through his gospel can make. And that's thicker than thicker than blood, really. The family of God. Second, he says he's a faithful minister. And the word minister here is is the Greek word deacon or, or servant. So that means he had a, probably a special gift for serving in all the ways that, that were hard, that the other ways that people would just shy away from doing, and possibly even those ways that, um, uh, that caused him to suffer a little bit, or at least be outside of himself to complete the task that Paul was doing. I think calling him a faithful minister meant, meant that he was someone who was reliable and trustworthy in his life of service to the church. And lastly, he says... He's a fellow servant, and the word servant here is, is that, that age-old word that Paul used, bond servant or slave. And so he's likening um, Tychicus to the, the, same, um, the same relationship, the same allegiance to Jesus that Paul himself felt to Jesus. And I think Paul was putting Tychicus, in terms of his service to Jesus, on the same footing as, as himself. What really makes Tychicus special is it, whenever you see him in Scripture— He's doing something for Paul. We don't have time to, 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 to go through the, the five places where he's mentioned, but each of those places, he's walking 100 miles across Asia. He's, he's traveling through rough seas to deliver uh, word from Paul, messages from Paul, um, serving the gospel and, and Christ Jesus. And that makes uh, uh, Typicus very special. The other person I think would be um, good for us to look at is, is a. Uh, a Epaphras. I was going to say Epaphras. How do you say that? Who knows? Epaphras. Um, the redemptive story of, of Epaphras is that he served on his knees. He was a person that had a life of service, but he served on his knees. We studied Epaphras many weeks ago. He was the evangelist of the Colossian church. He also probably was their pastor. And we also learned that these, the other two cities that are mentioned here, Hierapolis and Laodicea, he likely was the evangelist to those two cities about 10 miles away and served as their pastor as well. There's more words attributed to Epaphras in this, this, last, this last passage, in these two verses, verses 12 and 13, than any of the other people that Paul gives commendations from or to. So that, I think that makes him special. Epaphras had come to Rome uh, to tell Paul the trouble that uh, was going on in the Colossian church, and he ends up staying there. Okay, while Paul is in prison. And so the reason why uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae is because Epaphras took the time to explain to the apostle what was going on and to uh, make so much of it that Paul felt the need to encourage them through his writing. I think uh, there's something special said about Epaphras in, in verse 13. It says he, he's known for his working hard. You know what that working hard means? It's, it's the word pain, P-A-I-N, pain. That means when he says, I bear him witness, he has worked hard for you, that he's endured great pain for you. And the pain that we see Epaphras enduring for them are his struggles in prayer. Epaphras is a redemptive story of someone who lived a life of service, but unlike just a person that just picks up something and carries it from point A to point B or standing by Paul's side, which, of which he did all those things, he served on his knees, and that makes him special. These are only two examples. I think the testimony of, of everyone, all ten people listed in this chapter, would be that they're here, 
primarily because they exemplify lives of service. And here's the here's the difficulty of of preaching about service, especially those two in the likes of Tychicus and Epaphras. They put all the rest of us to shame. I mean, what's the the, the essence of, of servanthood really is dismissing your own needs and tending to the needs of others. And really, that's, that's what the gospel calls us to do. And so, as a, as a pastor preaching on a, a, you know, a sermon about uh, a, a sub-point about service can give us all a guilt trip. That we need, to be like, we need to be like Tychicus. That we would just drop all of what we're doing and we walk 100 miles for Jesus, right? I get on a, on a boat and just... And, you know, he was on the boat every time Paul was on a boat. You know, Paul was on some, some, some stormy boat rides, right? We need to be like Epaphras and, and pray more. Get on our knees and, and do all that. And I, I, honestly, I'm not trying to give you a, a guilt trip about service. But there is something for us to learn here. And the, the, the learning is these men lived lives of service. Not perfect lives, but they willingly dismissed themselves for the work of the gospel and for Jesus' sake. And we should do that, too. And so how do we do something that's not in us to do? Hold on to that thought. I'm going to answer that at the end. The second thing that we see here is a sense of family. A sense of family. I'm going to read verses 7, 9, and 15. Verse 7, I've already read that. It says, Tychicus is a beloved brother. Verse 9, speaking of Onesimus, says, he's our faithful and beloved brother. And then skipping to verse 15, it says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Obviously, the emphasis that I'm trying to um, help you to, to see is this idea of the brotherhood, brothers in the faith. And of course, brothers doesn't simply mean brothers, like dudes hanging out. It's, it's the brotherhood. It's, it's the um, Christians. It's the, the, the people, the, the, the people of God, those who are uh, allegiance to Jesus. And because we're allegiance to him, we have allegiance to ourselves as well. All through this text, you sense a deep affection and kinship uh, in, a, in a familial connection. And, and these aren't just people that Paul happens to go to work with or go to church with or even people that he might have you know, in his community group, so to speak. I think they're very much his spiritual family. He knows these people by name, and he's just rattling them off. Some of them are, uh, are going to complete missions for him, bringing the letter to the Colossian church. Some of them are actually with him tending to his knees and, and, and pressing forward and advancing the gospel right there in Rome because Paul couldn't. And then there's others in the church, in Colossae, just um, you know, waiting for some instruction, but, but just hunkering down and, and advancing God's kingdom right there. And I think he, he's saying these have formed a, a family, a family of God of sorts. I want to highlight Onesimus, and that uh, Onesimus is in verse 9. I think Onesimus' story of redemption is a life of grace and reconciliation. Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave. And according to Paul's personal letter in Philemon, he was firstly an unbeliever who had stolen something. We don't know exactly what he did, but it seems that he stole something, perhaps money, perhaps something very special from his slave master, Philemon. And then he escapes. He just, he's expecting to escape to the big city of Rome and just disappear in that mad sea of people. Think about Onesimus um, being a, you know, a, a bond servant and then going down in a mall two days ago for the 4th of July. I mean, can you find uh, you know, a, a gnat in the middle of all that haystack? Would it be a flea in a haystack? Whatever it is. Or a pen in a haystack. Okay? Impossible. But what happens to this, this, 
this dude. He runs into Paul. He's expecting to disappear, and he runs into the Apostle Paul, and somehow, we don't know how, uh, the gospel gets a hold of him. And instead of running away as a slave and living his life like he wants to, he ends up running into Jesus, and Jesus changes his life. Uh, Onesimus' name is useful. And of course, as a runaway slave, he's as useless as you could possibly be. But then he gets, he gets a little bit of Jesus, right? And, um, and the Spirit of God begins to change him. It begins to transform him. And, and uh, uh, the testimony of Onesimus being a part of the family of God are, are really these words. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. They call him a faithful and beloved brother. He's a runaway slave. That means God has changed his life. And then it says these words, who is one of you? That's pretty cool. He was trying to get away from those that he, um, that he belonged to as a, as a slave piece of property. And he got in the midst of people who had been changed by Jesus and the, infe- the infectious nature of this familial environment. And the, the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart changed him too, such that he not only changed in, in his likeness, but they changed in their connection to him. He became a brother, a beloved brother. He became more than that. He became one of them. Onesimus is firstly a story of the amazing grace of God. Just think about God changing a man who's trying to get away from everything and just radically um, making him something other than he was. Onesimus, um, um, he's a man with no possessions, no rights, and no inheritance under Roman law. But he becomes one that finds belonging, riches, and an inheritance in Christ. That's the first thing that we can glean from Onesimus. The second is, his story is also a picture of reconciliation. The reconciliation that's available to all of us because of Jesus' redemption of us. That means Jesus bought back. He, bought, he purchased by his blood our, our sin and, and our death that we merit because of our own sin. And so think about this. What would it look like if the church transit church, actually acted like family. Not the family you see on TV. Perhaps not even the family that you have, I mean, your own family, but the family as depicted in, in Scripture. That we feel, that we feel that each other, we can call each other beloved and faithful. That we can say, you know, he's, he's one of us. What would it look like if we treated each other and related to each other as family, I got three things that I would suggest to you. Firstly, perhaps we take responsibility for each other. We'd have each other's back. We'd look out for each other. I, I would care for you because you're you're simply my family. And honestly, sometimes we don't do we don't do our natural family like that. Secondly, I think we would speak to each other in loving honesty. And loving honesty is a special way to speak. Um, that's the way my daughter speaks. My my daughter Zoe. If something is going on, if you smell, like I come from a run, and like, you know, I don't smell myself, but she smells me. She's like, Daddy, you stink. <laughs> Loving honesty is, is, is letting truth be truth without being uh, harsh or abrasive. And that's what family does. Sometimes we just need to tell the truth around each other. Um, loving honesty would be uh, someone in your family that's, that's driving themselves into the pit of hell, or they're already there and they're stuck, and, and you... Um, delivering truth to them to, to, to nudge them out from the life that they're living. That boy that you're dating, he, 
he's, he's not right for you. Stop it. This thing that you're doing with your life, that sin, it's, it's wrong. Don't do that. I think loving honesty would be things of that sense. And then thirdly, I think if we treated each other truly as family, it would look like a sense of commitment to one another just because we're family. There is a difference between family and friends. And here's the difference. You can choose your friends. You can't choose your family. Your family, are, are, they're there whether you want them to be or not. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of family members that I know that I wish I didn't know. <laughs> because oftentimes family can, you know, it, it can be difficult. It can, they're the people that know, you, that know you best. You know them best. And the relationships navigating them can be hard sometimes. And we choose our friends, don't we? We choose those people that we want to go to the bar with. We choose those people that we want to hang out in the backyard over some barbecue with. We choose those that we want to go running with. We choose those that we want to do all kinds of things with. We choose them for the thing that they're good at that makes us feel good about ourselves when we're with them doing it. But you can't do that with family. And so the question for us here is, what makes us family? Uh, most of us aren't, you know, no, obviously those of y'all are sitting together are, are part of a a natural blood bot or a, a legal family. Those of you who are married, we're all family, obviously, by the gospel. That's the first thing. The gospel makes us family. We're reconciled to God by the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Puts us in the family of God. But let me offer to you, there are other things that actually make us family. And, and I don't know if you've ever thought about these. The, the, the first thing I would commend to you is serving together, serving together. And I think that's, what, that's the pattern that we see here at the end of Colossians. All these people, what were they doing? They were coming together under a common goal. What was the common goal? The, the, it was the mission of making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and knowing that Jesus was with them always, Matthew 28. That's, that's what they were doing. They were coming together under a common goal. You know, I like the military example. I've, I've lived, obviously, uh, at least half my life in the military. And there's something special about the military that, that almost makes you, that makes you gel like a family. It's a brotherhood. That's a special connection for those, both the, the men and women that are in the military, but also their families as well. And I would tell you, it's a number of things. Firstly, it's shared hardship. It's a shared sense of mission. It's, it's, uh, it's all those familial things, those special things, those nuances about what military life is all about. The uniforms, up in the morning, home late. It's the, uh, it's the, the, the pomp and ceremony. It's the deployments. It's, it's, it's being in combat. It's the struggle. It's all those things that really gel you together. It's serving together that makes that special. And I would... I would tell you that that serving together probably uh, does something in terms of making military people a family more than anything else that they could. And I'm not talking about just being friends and going out together. It's, there's a struggle. There's a camaraderie that, that happens in the military that, that makes them uh, more of a bond, of a family. And the third thing I would tell you is gospel cause creates gospel community. And what, we also see this in, in Colossians. Gospel cause creates gospel community. What do I mean by that? Gospel cause. They have something to live for. They have something to work toward. They have something for which their struggle 
makes life worth living. It possibly even makes life worth dying. Gospel cause creates gospel community. They're striving. They're serving together for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus brings them together in this neat community to which they all know where they're going and what they're doing. They're extending God's kingdom by the gospel. So firstly, they lived lives of service. Secondly, they lived, uh, they lived as family, family of God. And thirdly, and lastly, they lived as a gospel community. Verse 9, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. I don't know if you would be able to capture what the, the commonality, actually the, the differences in, uh, that I'm trying to point out in these, in these verses. In verse 9, we've already talked about Onesimus. He's a runaway slave who gets saved and is reconciled to his master, uh, Philemon. In verse 14, Luke's a doctor. He's a beloved physician, Paul calls him. And he's both tending to Paul's needs and also um, recording all that's going on as, as the gospel is going forward through Paul's missionary journeys. And of course, the, the notoriety of, of Luke is that he's, he's accredited with writing 52 chapters, two books, Luke and the sequel Acts, of our New Testament. And then thirdly, in verse 15, it, it says Nympha. Uh, if, if you're reading the King James, which I, I hope you're not, you might be. The King James, all right, uh, calls Nympha uh, uh, a man. Actually, the, the different versions differ as to if this is a male or female figure here. Uh, most, most of the latter translations um, attribute Nympha as a female. I'm going to call her female just because it sounds feminine. Nympha? Nympha? I don't know. Uh, she's an affluent woman in the city. And this is the, the neat thing about her. She's, she was actually affluent enough that she had a house that was big enough to accommodate the church at, Coloss- uh, ch- church at Laodicea. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, in the first century, th- there would have been um, no gathering. Well, they could have had a gathering like this outside, but there would be no buildings this large to, to house even a church of, of our small size. And so, not until the third century do we see churches that come together, that gather together in large numbers. Most of the the gatherings of the church were in smaller numbers, like community, missional communities, that type of thing, in, in a home. And so what I'm pointing out here in terms of gospel community, firstly, is um, there's this neat socioeconomic diversity that's happening, that's happening amongst Paul and those that served with him. You have a slave, a doctor, and an affluent woman that are all working together for uh, the building of God's church in Colossae. And that's a pretty neat thing. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 11, and Jesus, who's called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Uh, I'm pointing out here uh, racial diversity. Verse uh, Tychicus and Onesimus, they are, they are non-Jews, they're, they're Greeks. Uh, verse 10 through verse uh, 11, 
are all Jews. He's pointing out three Jews, three Hebrew men that worked amongst a host of non-Jews amongst Paul and his ministry. Of course, all of us, uh, those of you that, that read your Bible, you know that Paul would, would come into a, uh, any city, he'd go to the synagogue, and he'd preach the gospel. He'd preach Jesus and him crucified in the synagogues, trying to reach his own people. And then, as, as, it, as it happened in most of those locations, he was rejected. A few Jews believed. He'd take them along with him, and then he'd go preach to the, he'd go preach to the, uh, the Gentiles. And those Gentiles came to Jesus in flocks. And so here, we see that there's Jews and Gentiles serving in mission together. And obviously, there's significant cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. And in most cases, these, these differences produce barriers to shared experiences you know, around the gospel. And so to see this happening means that gospel community was happening. The gospel was changing them. It was not only forming them, it was changing them such that they would want to do ministry together. And then in verse 17, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Uh, Archippus is actually mentioned in uh, Philemon uh, verse 2. Paul says he's a fellow soldier, a fellow servant, and some have suggested that he's the young, the son uh, of Philemon and possibly even one of the pastors at uh, Colossae. He's mentioned at the end of, end of this book, and it's not in a, a favorable light, in fact. In fact, Ar- Archippus is said to, this is the words that, that Paul says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. So that means Archippus, Ar- he's holding back. He's got some giftings. He's got some abilities. Possibly he has uh, service that he has been told or maybe even uh, a prophetic word has told him that he should be about God and his, his work, and he's not doing it. Some um, scholars even say that um, perhaps Paul is addressing in, in, in all of these verses here in his final greetings, uh, he's like building up, saying this person's doing this. Look at what Onesimus is doing. Look what Epaphras is doing. And, Arch, um, you know, uh, Aristarchus is doing this. Even Nympha is opening her house to, to all the people at Laodicea. What are you doing, Archippus? Doing nothing. Get to work. I don't know that. I'm just ad-libbing. Verse 17 points out spiritual diversity. I think amongst these, um, these people serving um, and ministering along with Paul, we see various stages of spiritual maturity, various stages of uh, really um, in, inserting themselves into the work of God and various ways that they uh, have, have allowed the Holy Spirit to use them. Nympha just opened her house. We don't know what she did other than just opened her house. Tychicus and Onesimus, they were entrusted to, to take the, you know, what would become our scriptures and bring them hundreds of miles away from Asia, from, from Rome, and, and bring them to Colossae. And then others had other missions to do. And so Paul is, is co- commending to Archippus, get to work. But he's also highlighting there's spiritual diversity here. You know, one of the things I think this, uh, this implies is that we all come, um, in, you know, with, with various things that God has put in us, both in ability and skill and talent, but also just in, in our desire. And it's okay for you to serve where God has made a way for you to serve. Um, 
the other thing I think in regards to gospel community that, that we should mention is, you know, all of us come in with some kind of prejudice. And we could say that, you know, there, there's a, this is a, a diverse group of people. And they likely had all kinds of prejudices against each other. And your experience is likely like mine. You don't come into a, a Christian community and just drop all your prejudices. And we, ha- we all have prejudices. We do. What happens? The gospel has to work on us. We have to be transformed from the inside out so that what is unacceptable to us and so that the things that we believe that aren't like what uh, God through his Bible uh, proscribes, God, the Holy Spirit has to change us such that we would want to believe what his, his truth says and not believe what our experience has taught us or what somebody else has said to us. Spiritual diversity is key. And so what do we do with this? I think um, my parting comments to you would be, we want to be a church like, like Colossae. Not only that, we want to be a people like these people represented here in the back of this book. They're people who live lives of service. They're people who God used to form the family of God. But more importantly, they were a true blue gospel community. And here's just the... We see this in Colossae. We see this in these ten lives here in the end of the chapter. Um, people are messy, so church is going to be messy. That's just a fact, a fact of what we do and, and, and you know, what the gospel has the, uh, the ability to do. We want to reflect much of what we see in Colossae and in these, pe- in these people's lives in our own church community. We want to be a people whose lives tell stories of redemption and reconciliation, both with God but also with each other. And here's the good news. I look around. I look at our, our service. I look at what we've done, but also what we, we're about to do. I look at our community groups. I look at the, you know, just the tapestry of people that we have right here today. And I'm encouraged. I see God taking away our prejudices, breaking down barriers, helping us to get along, changing our hearts, bending our will to his truth. I see that happening in our, in our fellowship. And I'm pleased. But I would tell you, you know, if, if there's always good news, a little bit of bad news. We, we got a long way to go. That's the bad news. We got a long way to go. We got a long way to go because we're messy and that's going to make church messy. That doesn't mean it's wrong that, we are, that we're growing in all this. And so here's this, this question that I that asked at the beginning that I think we need to come back around to. How do we become what we're not? How do you become someone that lives a life of service if you just don't want to do anything? How do, you, how do you serve? How do you insert yourself into a family when you're looking on the outside and that family looks a little bit more dysfunctional than you would, want, than you would care to be a part of? And then lastly, how, how do you become a part of a, of a community, P- perhaps if you want to be a part of it, but you're, you know, you're on the outside and everybody else is like giving uh, group hugs and you just can't even, you can't even, can't even break through? And I would tell you, th- th- there's many ways, but I think the thing that we've learned in Colossians is we do that by worship. We become what we worship. We, we said that several weeks ago. I come back to it today. We've learned in Colossians that worship changes us. You become what you worship. And Paul in Colossians exhorts us to worship the preeminent Christ. That's the, the theme of our sermon series. The essence of worship is that we, we come to the end of ourselves. God wants us to come to the end of ourselves so that we would stop worshiping 
our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, putting ourselves on our own throne with a crown on our head, and we would wor- instead we worship Jesus. Jesus deserves to be worshipped. He's preeminent. He's the one that's holding the world together. I like what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is His Spirit. And so when we come to the end of ourselves and worship Jesus, we become like Him. Jesus serves us by dying on the cross for our sin. Jesus makes us a part of His family by the good news of his gospel. He welcomes us into his gospel community. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would encourage our hearts, God, that where we need it, that you would challenge us, and that uh, more importantly, Lord God, that you would change us. Father, I'm thankful for the stories of redemption that we read here in this last chapter. Of, of Colossians. I pray that we would identify with one of these men or women, that we would see both lives of service, that we would see people faithfully committing themselves as the family of God, and that God, that as you formed a community around the gospel through Paul and those who served with him in the advancement of your gospel, that you would do that same thing through us right here in the midst of this town where we are. God, we are, in many ways, we're not up for the task. We've got a long way to go. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. God, I pray that you would put in us all those things that, that, sh- help, that, 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 we, that causes us to shy away from doing those things that you've called us to do. God, I pray that you would help us to become worshipers, worshipers, worshipers not, of our, not of ourselves, but of you and your fame. And I pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen.